morning. It is Tuesday, June 16th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN. And all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, we'll discuss the intersection of COVID-19, race, and the opioid epidemic. We're joined by our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters, and her guest today, Dr. Kanika Turner, Associate Medical Director of Family Care Health Center and Physician Consultant to the Missouri State Opioid Response Team. Good morning, Dr. Alleman and Dr. Turner. Good morning, Mallory, and welcome, Dr. Turner. Good morning. Um, so before we get started to talk about how COVID-19 race and um, uh, opiate use disorders are intersecting in some really challenging ways, I want to go through the um, the numbers starting worldwide. We now have 8 million documented cases worldwide with 439,000 people died and about 4 million people recovering In the United States, we've topped 2 million cases, and we're moving in on 120,000 deaths, 118,000 deaths, with 890,000 people recovering. Um, From Matthew Holloway's data in Missouri, we have 16,912 cases with uh, 897 deaths and um, a, a racial disparity in that of more cases and more deaths. Uh, by people uh, of African descent, African Americans and Black Americans. So, um, and then I also wanted to mention that down in the southwest corner of the state, as where the state uh, intersects with borders uh, Oklahoma, we're seeing some really remarkable increases in cases. Taney County had a 60% increase, Berry County a 40% increase, uh, Jasper and McDonald County 25% increase. Here in Boone County, numbers are staying fairly stable. We're 216 cases with two deaths and about uh, five to seven cases, new cases a day being identified. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with that, <laughs> uh, welcome, Dr. T- uh, Dr. Turner, and um, thank you for joining us. And I'm wondering if you could uh, just start us off about uh, give us a brief idea about these uh, three big pandemics and how they're interacting with each other. Right, right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I actually just did a presentation on this um, last week. And if you really look at the the numbers, the geographic makeup and the distribution, especially, you know, I'm in St. Louis. If you look at St. Louis County and St. Louis City, you know, the the maps of, you know, where you see the most health disparities overlap significantly with COVID-19, and even if you bring in overdose deaths, um, it's really striking how, you know, the the maps are so much similar. And um, I think, you know, with COVID-19, and this is what, you know, the discussion been across the the country, that it's really bringing to light the issues with systemic racism that's within our system. We're seeing certain populations being disproportionately affected um, i.e. the black population compared to whites. And if you really look closely at those areas, those communities that's being impacted, you will see their food deserts, the, you know, their access just to primary care offices, maybe, you know, 20 or 30 miles. So definitely um, a lot of reliance on transportation. 
if you also look at the, the workforce that blacks are typically to work those jobs, they can place them at risk for exposure. For example, you know, more likely to, you know, work um, in transportation, driving a bus on a hospital system, being the janitor or, you know, delivering the food to the patient. And those are, you know, considered essential um, jobs as well, but they take those positions, you know, less likely to be able to stay at home and work remotely from home. You know, if you have to pay, have to, you know, get food on the table, you're going to go to work if you don't have sick time, you don't have that luxury as some people do who have, you know, jobs like us or, you know, in, you know, a physician, a lawyer, those particular jobs. And so the dynamics within the black community is a little bit different. And, you know, it's time for us to start thinking about those issues and acting on those issues because COVID-19 definitely brought this to light. I think a lot of people saw it, but when you see numbers, numbers say a lot. Um, and numbers can also get movement with action and not just only talking. Yeah, and I'm wondering when you overlay those maps, are those also the maps that we, we would, the way we would predict things would go if we looked at the maps about redlining uh, in the yeah. la- middle of the last century? Yes, yes, yeah. If you, yeah, if you do, especially, like I said, from, you know, and I can talk you know, really well about St. Louis, but even if you look across the nation, and you look at the issues with redlining and, you know, in St. Louis, you know, back then, you know, blacks were more likely to be pushed to live in North City, St. Louis, and whites were more likely to be pushed over to the West, um, uh, West St. Louis. And then even, in, you know, in, at certain times in South City, St. Louis, that it was a time where they were really pushing blacks to migrate and live there. So if you look at that with redlining, we're seeing the effects of things that took place 50 and 60 years ago because of a decision. So all across the board, um, you can see that, you know, the inequities are manifesting, not just disparities, but these inequities are manifesting. And what you're saying is that that's where also where we're seeing the deaths from COVID-19, and we're also seeing overdose deaths from people with um, substance use disorder. Right, right. Um, So if you, so with, with Missouri, you know, if you pull up your, the map with, COVID-19 cases, and if you look at the, um, the the data for overdose deaths, lacks a little bit behind. You know, 2018, we got mapped up for that. Recent numbers for 2019 just came out. But if you look at the distribution, you know, it's quite scary how those maps are quite similar. Um, I just received, you know, a, a map with COVID-19 cases with St. Louis County, but then also looking at overdose death rates in St. Louis County, and some of the same zip codes are being affected. And so if you think about, you know, how is that possible? How is it that you got two different things, a, you know, an epidemic and a pandemic hitting the same community, you know, in St. Louis County and even across the, the state of Missouri? And if you take it, you know, a little bit larger and look at maps with overdose deaths in the, the country, you can see some comparisons and similarities as well. Um, where there are higher overdose death rates, you can also see higher cases in black black communities. So help us understand if you could bring it from the macro down to the micro, how is it that this is happening? Because I think we, I hope that everybody who's listening knows that this isn't because there's some deficit in black people that they are um, just determined to become opiate addicts and also die from COVID. Like this is this is not something that we can blame right. the people who are <laughs> right. This is not a for. decision, right? Somebody woke up and right decided that I no, I, I agree with you. Um, I think it, it has to do with you know. Let's look at the history with opioid use and substance use. 
And, and actually, I'm a family physician, so I didn't know you were a family physician. So um, I love family medicine doctors. But if you uh, look no. at the history, right, <laughs> we are awesome. No? Um, but if you look at the history with substance use law, so going back, you know, with the Rockefeller laws that back then substance use was more likely to be a criminal issue. You more likely to be incarcerated. If you look at the, the law with crack and cocaine, so crack was rock and cocaine is powder, the sentencing was so much severe, you know, if someone was, you know, had possession of crack, crack cocaine compared to just cocaine in a powder form. I mean, we're looking at life sentences compared to somebody carrying just a gram of the cocaine powder five or six years. So, and, and if you look a little bit closer with that, blacks are more likely to use the, the rock, the crack, and whites are more likely to use the cocaine powder. So even just within that, it's a chemical makeup. It's just the only difference with cocaine use. And because somebody chooses to use it as a rock compared to snorting as powder, the differences in the sentences were so severe. Um, so it's that mindset that in the community that opioid use were more likely to be criminalized and penalized. It was deemed as a moral failure. This is your fault. The media also portrayed this in a negative light. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was crack babies. Now we have neonatal asthma syndrome to explain, you know, babies who are going through withdrawal from moms with opioid use. So there's this concept, you know, that came out called whitewash that now, you know, once it's you know, moved and became a majority population issue in the United States, the, the media portrayed this differently, that the face of opioid use was different. It wasn't, you know, some homeless black person in a vacant abandoned building that's disheveled. We see, you know, white kids in rural areas, you know, the family support system, you know, parents are helping them. So even the media played a role in how this was portrayed. Now in medicine, we've always known this to be a chronic disease. And now we're getting this message out that this is a chronic disease, it's treatable. And when you look at other substance use disorders, not just opioid use, but alcohol use, nicotine use, you know, if you look at that as well, these are things that's treatable. And, you know, and with us going through medical school, they didn't teach us how to appropriately take a really good social history and then start listing this as our problem um, and our problems to start discussing and having differential. It was we focus on hypertension, diabetes. So I think just with right. that, it's a systemic issue. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I think that it's so true, this whole idea that um, uh, substance use disorders are a chronic illness that have that have um, effective treatment and deserve our compassion rather than they are moral failings. And um, it's, yeah, too, too bad that you're um, an immoral person and you got, um, right. I, I can't even come up with the language anymore, Dr. Turner. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I want to say too bad you got caught in that. No, that's not the way that that, that thing goes. Um, yeah, it's, um, since you make a choice every day to be a user, a, a, an addict, rather than um, an upstanding citizen, we don't have any patience for you. Right, right, right. And, it's, right. You know, and, and the more I work in the area of substance use and addiction, you know, um, I'm, I'm seeing a lot that I feel like that could have been addressed years ago. And the other thing, like, you know, I take care of, you know, multiple patients across the board. And when I look at my, you know, addiction medicine population that my black patients that come to me compared to my white patients, it's so many differences. You know, I always tell people that my white patients that come and see me, they always have a support system. They have, you know, a mother, a spouse, somebody mm -hmm. that's supporting them. And my black patients that come with me, 
you know, they, the support system is broken. And I think, you know, one area that we need to focus on, and this is also going with COVID-19, that, you know, rebuilding that support system, that network uh, that has been, you know, disrupted for years and years and years. And a lot of that has to do with poverty. I do think, you know, crime plays a part of that. You know, um, you know, one thing that came up, too, that when we first started this, this discussion, you would say you don't think that somebody, you know, woke up and made those decisions. But even when we look at diabetes and hypertension, I don't think anybody thought about, you know, when I when I grow up, I want to be, you know, a diabetic patient or insulin or I want to be someone that's on high blood pressure medication. But look at the, the structure, the infrastructure we have in place for people to survive. It's a survival mechanism. If I have to have, if I have food stamps or even if I don't qualify for food stamps, but I'm working a job where I'm living paycheck to paycheck, you know, eating the fatty foods is cheaper compared to going to get right. the nice healthy foods. But then if you also look at, you know, where's the distribution, where's the access to the healthy foods that we want people to eat compared to the fast food restaurants, the liquor store distribution, the, um, you know, the multiple gas stations, the corner stores. Look at the makeup in the community, what is more accessible, you know, and, and, and what's, what's more convenient to get. So I tell people all the time, if I, too, was in a survival mode and I need to eat, I'm not getting ready to drive 30 to 40 minutes away just to get that apple. I'm going to walk down the street and get something to get my belly full. And I think that is the systemic structure that we need to revisit and not blame the individual, but blame the system that set up that created these inequities. Right. And then once we blame the system, let's change the system. So um, I'm (laughs) so Talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has made it more difficult or has made it a little bit easier in some ways to treat substance use disorders. I will say it's actually made it easier, believe it or not. I know. Now do. Yeah. So I, I, that's one good thing with COVID-19. So I think, you know, the um, access of getting into a treatment program, they waive the criteria that the first visit must be in person we can do telemedicine visits now, and that helped bring medicine to the people instead of the people coming to us all the time. So definitely that was um, those are two big wins that made this part, you know, pretty easy. Then, of course, the people going to methadone clinics, um, they're, you know, they're able to take home a larger um, amount of medications. And even with, you know, the Suboxone compared to before where you had to go every day, get it observed. So I think that's one thing, too, um, that helped. Um, in light of COVID-19, that the access has definitely improved for, for, for people. Um, but I would say on the flip side of that, I think, you know, I keep saying the word, I think I should have stopped saying it. Uh, but on the flip side of that, you know, we have a huge population that's unhoused and there's, you know, comorbidities with untreated, uh, you know, mental health disorders as well as substance use disorders. So those particular populations, you know, if one person in that camp was to get it, they're unable to self-quarantine, you know, less likely to be able to right. call a treatment site to get tested for treatment. So, I, you know, so on one hand, it's great as far as giving them access to the medical community, but on the other hand, it also places them at risk. And if you think about how we, you know, how we educate the community with responding to an overdose, at first, we were recommending people to breathe for them, to perform CPR. If you don't have Narcan, you can't, you know, breathe for them until help arrives on the scene. Well, now, right. you know, now we have to change that. That We don't want you giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation because if that person has COVID-19, you know, both of you all have it. So I think that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a double double whammy there that, you know, if right. somebody's overdosed and you don't have Narcan, do you run the risk of exposing yourself to COVID-19 and end up hospitalized? You know, and on event, we... we you know, and, and I have heard some people 
in that, you know, in the unhoused population who's really doing a lot of, you know, grassroots work, work in the unhoused and substance use population that, you know, they said they'll, they'll use a breathing mask, but they're still going to do, you know, um, um, CPR to revive the person. Right, and there's also the other risk. It's what if the rescuer has COVID-19 and now they've given it to the other person. So it's right. both directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, um, I just want to comment on the conversation we were having before about access to treatment. I think that a lot of the public do not realize the barriers there are to get into recovery programs. So, right. for example, um, as physicians, you and I can easily get a DEA certification uh, by the, from the feds and a BNDD license from right. the state, and we can prescribe opiates for pain. But if what right. we want so, to like be, basically be a part of the opiate problem, um, mm-hmm. not that's the only thing those do, but it is one of the side effects of prescribing those medicines for pain. But if what a physician said, well, now I'd like to be a part of uh, helping to people to get access to medically assisted therapy, the uh, methadone and buprenorphine, which help people um, stay off of other opiates and mm-hmm. also be functioning, um, now you have to go through a special training, get a special waiver. You have to right. reprint your prescription pads with the new number on it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then you're supposed to see those people every month. You're sp- they're supposed to get a urine drug screen. You're, they're, they're, you're supposed to require them to go to counseling. Very many things are required when um, people are like, well, I, it's just easier for me to go back out and use heroin then. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that is true. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I and um, you know that you know and, and if you look at it, you know, Suboxone is safer than a prescription pain medicine. But we have all of these barriers as a physician to where, you know, we like you said, we can easily prescribe the Percocet, the Norco. But if we want to treat somebody, you got to do eight hours of training. You know, it, it wasn't really taught too well in medical school. So that's a barrier just within the medical system itself with being able to provide, you know, treatment to someone. But then if you also look at, you know, in our workforce, primary care, you know, field, how many people are comfortable on a family medicine, internal medicine level with providing care? You know, traditionally they go to a psychiatrist to get that care. Right. And there's a shortage of psychiatrists anyway. So, there's a big push for more primary care doctors to offer this treatment, at least for me in St. Louis. And I'm a huge advocate of integration of primary care with addiction medicine because, of course, I'm going to be biased. I think we provide great care. You know, it, going to I a treatment too. facility, right, <laughs> going to a treatment facility is only focused on the substance use. Sometimes people feel stigmatized and, you know, someone racial discrimination or racial bias, they're less likely to come to you. There's so many different barriers in a treatment center, so many rules to follow. You know, you'll quickly get to, to get kicked out. And my thing is, you know, if our goal is to save lives, why are we kicking people out? There was actually a recent article that came out um, in the, uh, the uh, Journal of uh, Drug Policy um, last month, May of 2020, and what they, they looked at the, you know, office-based setting providing people norphine and, um, what the and, and their 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 hypothesis was: you know, people who um, use non-prescribed Suboxone are less likely to experience an overdose in the past six months. And so they looked at you know all their patients, urine drug screens, all of that. And what they showed was that people who actually you know likely bought the Suboxone off the street compared to buying the fentanyl, the heroin off the street, they were less likely to experience an overdose. So even that exposure to Suboxone on the street. 
right. imposes a decreased risk of an overdose. And so for some people, you know, and some, and, and I would say there are some practices that if they find out that somebody bought the box on off the street, you know, sometimes they're really quick to kick them out. Or if they find yeah. out they're taking Suboxone, but yet their urine drug screen, you know, returns positive for cocaine, they kick them out. And to me, you know, right. as a physician, you know, I don't want to kick you out for that. That's something else we can do. It's a discussion starter. We need to discuss, well, what else is going on, you know, to revisit your treatment plan and not just kick you out of the program. Couldn't say it better myself. It's really lovely to hear that <laughs> echoed by somebody else. I'm feeling a little bit like a minority singing in the choir there. So uh, <laughs> Dr. Kanika Turner, um, family physician in St. Louis. And remind me again your title. We've come to the end of our time, but you and oh, I are okay. record. I... Yeah, we're going to record a um, uh, Your Health Matters seg- segment so people who have been delighted by Dr. Turner can hear more of her uh, probably next week oh, on thank Wednesday you. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. All right. And then so tomorrow I, on Community yeah. Pulse, I'll have um, uh, Sarah Williams back. Uh, and we're going to be talking more about what we just what we just heard Dr. Turner talk about, about this whole harm reduction strategy and applying it to how we decide what activities we're going to resume and, and in what are those going to look like. So I look forward to talking to people tomorrow. Thank you, Mallory, for being a, an engineer. And thank you, for Dr., Dr. Turner, for joining us. Thank you both. This was a great conversation. Appreciate your time. All right. Okay. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Again, thank you to our guest, Dr. Kanika Turner, for joining us today. Dr. Turner is the Associate Medical Director of Family Care Health Center and Physician Consultant to the Missouri State Opioid Response Team. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. and later in the day at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. You can leave us a message at 573-874-1139 or email gm at kopn.org. We would love to hear from you. Up next is a brief music break followed by an abridged version of background briefing. Thank you so much for listening to Community Pulse on KOPN 89.5, your volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station. Enjoy this beautiful day.